Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Well, good morning, church. <laughs> I'm Eric. I'm one of the elders here. I'm also on staff as a full-time pastor. Vince, our usual teaching pastor, is on vacation. He's checking out the northwest part of our country. He's going to get a little Canada in there as well. And he is doing it all by minivan. So, I don't know if you know Vince's family. He has not one boy. He doesn't have two boys. He doesn't have three boys, nor does he have four. He has five little boys crammed in that minivan, ages 13 and down. I'm sure we're going to get some sermon illustrations out of this trip when he gets back. Now, as a church, we typically pick a book of the Bible, and we just work our way from the front to the end. Right? It doesn't allow us to avoid any passages that we don't want to preach on or we find particularly challenging. And we also go from the New Testament to the Old Testament, to the New Testament to the Old Testament. We just finished up a series on James a few weeks ago, which is the New Testament. So upcoming is a big Old Testament book we're going to start this fall. The series hasn't been named yet, but to build a suspense, I can tell you it's going to be a big Old Testament book. It's going to be full of Old Testament narrative. It is going to be awesome. Before the summer, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Psalms. We aren't doing the Psalms just because we had to preach on something, but we're doing it because I actually think it's going to help us as a church. It'll be a helpful reminder for us. The book of Psalms is like no other book, is it? It speaks to our emotions. It's full of poetry. The book of Psalms retrains our eyes on the greatness and the majesty of our God. See, the book of Psalms doesn't allow us to view God as somebody who's small or insignificant or disinterested. The book of Psalms doesn't allow us to see God as somebody who's worthy of half-hearted worship. It doesn't allow us to see a God who's worthy of the crumbs of devotion and adoration we send his way when we have time, when we feel about it, does it? The book of Psalms shows us that God is God. It should inspire a holy fear in us, a fear in the sense of deep honor and respect before our God. God is God. But I know, at least in my life, life's circumstances has a really powerful effect on my view of God, doesn't it? One, one way or the other. That I can have a really good time in life, a really poorly time in my life, and my view of God is affected either way. Take, for example, if my life is going really well, I don't have a whole lot of relational conflict, work is going well, I have hope in the future, even then I can lose the sense of God's majesty. I lose a sense of the attitude of humility I should have before this God, of dependence I should have upon him. But and vice versa, if life is particularly difficult, if work is hard, if there's conflict in my relationships, if I'm hopeless, I lose God's majesty then as well. I start to question God's goodness, his sovereignty, his care for me. Now, I know I've shared this story to some of you before, so I'm just going to share it to all of you now. So before we moved to Fort Collins, I worked at UPS for eight years before that. The last six months of my tenure at UPS, I had to switch shift, which means I got a new manager. Now, this new manager change was dramatic. I mean, this guy I knew going in, he manages in a completely opposite style to me. But I was optimistic. I thought, we can make it work, have a good working relationship. It's going to be okay. That optimism lasted for about a month or so, and then it was gone. 
And I started to change slowly. The stress at work would culminate. It would, it would mount. And I noticed I began to smile much less. I laughed much less. I felt that my value as an employee and also as a person completely depended on whatever numbers were waiting for me at work. So I'd walk into work that day, and I would not know how I was going to be treated because I didn't know what numbers were there waiting for me. The weekends were miserable because I knew Monday was coming. Anybody experienced that before? The weekends were horrible. My, my boss and I did not get along. In fact, I have since learned since that time that I was depressed. Like, I was legitimately depressed during that time. I had a seminary degree, which I felt God called me to. I had a job that paid really well, excellent benefits, but it was sucking the life out of me. I had a brand new baby. I had, I had a wife who quit her job so she could stay at home with that baby. Life should be wonderful, but all I saw before me was misery, and I saw no way out. In fact, I remember going to work one day on the freeway. It was down in Denver at the time. And I thought, there's no way out of this. Like, I could, all I have to do is turn the steering wheel and the oncoming traffic, and that's my out. Like, that made sense to me. It registered in my mind. I was experiencing pain, relational conflict. I lost hope, and it began to affect my view of God, who he is. Can you relate to that at all? Maybe it's a marriage that you feel is crumbling. You know that God has called you and your spouse together, but where in the world is God right now? Or maybe it's your health of you or a loved one that it just gets worse and worse and worse and it seems insurmountable. How will you ever see good health again? Or maybe it's a dead-end job you feel that you're in. You've been in this job for a long time. You want to change, but you don't know how to because this is all you have experience in. All your skills are in this particular job. How do you make a change? Or maybe you don't have a job. And there's no prospect on the horizon. Or maybe you're just profoundly lonely. Here we live in Fort Collins. We're supposed to be happy here, right? But you have no idea how to find a friend. You don't know how to do community within Fort Collins. Or it could be really personal. You know there's issues underneath the surface of your heart, but you have no idea how to address them and how to start uh, talking about it or, or, or getting at them at all. You don't know how to do it. You know it's there, but you have no idea how to get there. Don't these life experiences begin to affect our view of God? In fact, our hearts begin to think that God is something in who, in fact, he is not. This morning we're going to look at the book of Psalm, chapter 11. Psalm 11. Turn to your Bibles if you don't have one. There should be a Bible and a pew back in front of you. If you don't own one, now you do. Take that one on the one condition that you read it. Book of Psalms. I believe that David, the author of the psalm, is going to speak words that completely relate to that darkness that you may be feeling that you have experienced in the past or that you may experience in the future. I think these words are going to be challenging. I think that they're going to be encouraging. As has been our custom, I'm going to put Psalm 11 up on the screen. I'd ask all of you to stand if you're able. We're going to read Psalm 11 together out loud. We do this to show respect for God's Word. When we're done reading it, I'll say, this is God's Word, and then you can say, Thanks be to God. That's correct. That reminds us that God's word is precious. Let's read Psalm 11 together. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. 
The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. Silas tests the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is God's word. Did you catch the dark situation that David was in? It was there. It's legitimate. This is, his situation is grim. Look back at verses 2 through 3. Let me read these again quick. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, in David's life, the situation may very well have arisen when he was running from King Saul. Do you remember the story? Back in the book of 1 Samuel is where we get the story. Now, King Saul is the first king of Israel. He's big, he's tall, he's handsome, he's mighty, he's everything you'd want a king to be. So he starts off really strong. But then Saul's story goes tragic. He begins to become prideful, selfish. In a lot of ways, Saul becomes his own God. His heart begins to bend from the one true God to the one true God rejects Saul as king over Israel. So enter David, just a shepherd's boy. But a heart, he has a heart that's soft and a heart devoted to the one true God. Now, their interaction, the story is a long story, but David ends up being in Saul's army, and he finds much success as a warrior. In fact, people start singing the praises of David rather than Saul, so Saul becomes jealous. So what does Saul begin to do? He begins to seek David's life to kill him, right? He takes part of his army. He actually chases David to kill him. So David gets out of Dodge. People still say that, David, get out of Dodge. I mean, he runs away. So he takes some people faithful, loyal to David, to himself, and he runs. One of the areas he may well have run was an area like this. It's mountainous. There's caves. You see those dark spots? Those are all caves in the wall. And it's like this all over that region. These caves are easy to hide in. They're hard to find. So if you can imagine the situation, David and his men, they're in an area like this. They know Saul's army is coming. They're exasperated. They've been on the run for a long time. And they don't know exactly what to do. They don't know where to go for protection. How can they get out of the situation? They become desperate. So David's men, they tell David something like this. This is their suggestion. They, they say, this is, how bad, this is how bad the situation is. Saul's attack is imminent. He's about ready to pounce upon us. The arrow is on the string. It's probably going to be an ambush. We'll never see it coming. They shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. We don't have anybody to go to. We can't go to the court system. We can't go to the king. He's the crazy one chasing us in the first place. The foundations, or figuratively the, the norms or the pillars of society have been destroyed. Our world's turned upside down. We have no more hope. This threat is real. So David's men, they suggest a way forward. End of verse 1, they say, flee like a bird to your mountain. They say, David, run to this cave. We're going to run to this cave for protection. That cave is going to save us. They, in other words, they say, we're going to flee from this darkness. The darkness is great, and we're going to go to our own solution. They say, figure out what you can do. What, what can we do? What solution can we possibly have? We can go to a cave, so take it. Run with it. They flee from the darkness because the darkness is so great. This makes complete sense, doesn't it? You and I, we would probably do the exact same thing. And one of those caves is a whole lot better than being demolished by Saul's army. It makes sense to us. 
but where else are you going to go? I mean, you're not going to the king, right? You're not going to the king. Are you going to go to a foreign nation? Maybe find shelter there? Well, David did that for a little while. Your society has been turned upside down. This makes sense to us. Hope has been lost. But this common sense action step, so to speak, deeply troubles David. And I think this is what's so jarring for us about the psalm. And I think because it's so jarring, this is the point of the psalm. We track with David's men. We can, we can relate to how they feel, to the thought process, to their suggestion. We can relate to that. Now, David sees that. He cannot relate at all. David's response is actually the polar opposite of his men's suggestion. See, David sees something else happening. It isn't just the actual action that he can do. He sees the hearts of his men becoming desperate, becoming hopeless, and trying to grab for any solution they possibly can. He sees hearts that are trying to find salvation in their own solution, that trust in the one true God is being replaced by panic, being replaced by hopelessness. So David declares in verse 1, he says, In the Lord I take refuge. This is a heart declaration, isn't it? There's no like concrete action step with this. I'm sure David's men were like, yeah, we take refuge in the Lord, but what are we actually going to do? Where are we actually going to go? Who are we going to go to? I think because there is no action step here, it's so very different than the suggestion that David's men make, we see a profound point that God is supremely interested, God is supremely concerned about your heart. He's interested in where do you go when the pressure is on? Who do you turn to? To what do you turn to? Who do you flee to? Who or what do you seek to save you? Now, let's be honest, very few of us, by God's grace, none of us are going to be on the run from an army by a crazy king intent intent on killing you. Hopefully you never relate with that situation. But I think we can fully relate with the hearts of David's men. I think it's completely relevant for us today. How they felt within the darkness, how they felt trapped how they felt that hope was slipping away, how they had nowhere to go to, how they felt like their world has been turned upside down, how they were experiencing pain and that pain was affecting their view of God, that their hearts were bending away from God. We can identify with this. Now, what does the Bible call it when you start to look to someone or something else instead of God to save you? What does the Bible call it? Idolatry. Yes, it's idolatry. Idolatry takes so many different forms in our lives, doesn't it? Our hearts are made to worship. We're going to look for someone or something to save us. And when you're in the middle of that dark spot, and God seems like he's not helping you, maybe he doesn't care at all, our hearts very subtly go to other things or other people to save us. How easy is it to run to a book to save your marriage? Or to run to a friend to save your loneliness? or an online job site to save your hope for employment, or maybe it's medication to save your health, or maybe it's some parts of the Fort Collins culture, the solution that Fort Collins says is dogs, beer, and nature, right? That that's going to save you and distract you from the things that are happening in your heart. For me, when I was at UPS, I ran to quitting my job. That is what I was convinced was going to save me. It was after a really rough shift one night, Cassie and my wife took took a walk, we said, you know what, it's just not worth it anymore. We're going to quit my job the next morning. Now, you have to know that I had nothing else lined up. My wife had quit her job so she could stay home with my baby, who was maybe four or five months old at the time. Yet I was convinced that quitting my job was going to save me. That solution was it. It was going to ease the pain for me. 
And ever so subtly, that pain began to bend my heart away from God. I believe that David's men were in a similar heart condition. That's why this is relevant for us today. So David begins this psalm by declaring, In the Lord I take refuge. I don't know if you caught this, but it, it seems that David, when he heard the suggestion from his men, he actually found that suggestion to be ludicrous. Did you, did you pick that up? To us, it makes sense. It's common sense suge- suggestion. Go to the caves. But to David, it hit him as ludicrous. It's as if David says, how can you say you have no hope? How can you say we have to run to a cave to save us? That your Savior is quitting your job? How can you say that? Do you not know my God? Do you not know the Lord? I think in, in David's mind, his only rationale for why his men could suggest this, suggest this because they had a deficient view of God. <laughs> Their view of God needed to be corrected. That's the only thing that made sense in David's mind for why they would suggest this as an action step. So David is now going to spend the rest of the psalm, it's going to get beautiful here, the rest of the psalm showing us who David is. I, I want to show you just a couple things textually. So up here, the Lord, that's in bold, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, beginning of the phrase, beginning of the line, right? Hebrew, the original language, you put that at the beginning of the line, that's the point of emphasis. So we're going to about to enter a part of this psalm that's all about who the Lord is. Even using the word the Lord is special. The ancient Hebrews, they had a special name for God, a covenantal name. It was Yahweh. But they treated that name as such, deserving of such respect and honor that they would not even say the name. They say Adonai instead. But our text is using that, that, that other word. So our English translations use the capital Lord to get at it. So the God we're talking about is Yahweh. He's the personal one true living God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God that now David is about to tell us about. David's, David's men uh, had, had their reason for why they should go to the cave. Now David is about to give us reasons for why we should trust in God, why God himself is trustworthy. We can relate to David's men, so we need to hear David's correction here. Look at verse 4. The Lord is king. That's the first reason. The Lord is king. He, here are the two responses that I want to show you to the darkness back to back. The first one that David's men gave, he, they said, essentially, the darkness is so great that we're going to run to our own solutions to flee the darkness. But what was David's response? David said that the Lord is so great, that's why I'm going to flee to him. In other words, I'm flee from the darkness to our own solutions because the darkness is so great. David says, because the darkness is so great, flee from it, but flee to the Lord because he is so great. Verse 4, the Lord is king. Even in the midst of darkness that has seemingly devoured all sense of hope, our world is upside down, David declares that the king is still on his throne. Even when it feels like anarchy is ruling the day, the Lord is still king. In fact, God is king even in the midst of evil and violence and suffering and darkness. Now, through the ages, through generations, this, I believe, has been the most difficult biblical truth to accept and the least to understand. That how could a good and sovereign God exist in a world so full of pain and so full of suffering? And the, the logic goes like this. We know there's evil and suffering because we experience it. So something else has got to give. Either God is not good, so then he's evil and sovereign, or God is really not sovereign, so he's good, but he's helpless. 
do you ever sense your heart to go in those directions when you're facing darkness? You start to question maybe God's goodness, God's sovereignty. Is he really in control? Maybe God's very existence in the first place. If your heart does go there, you're certainly not alone. You're actually in really good company. You remember our, our, our study of the book of Job? We did it several months ago. Job's a long book. But Job suffers unimaginable darkness. We will probably never suffer the way that Job did. And Job started off really strong. His faith was strong. He said, yep, yeah, this is who God is, this is who God is, this is who God is. And as the book of Job goes, he starts to see cracks in his life. He starts to see cracks in his faith. And how does the book of Job end? It ends with Yahweh, the one true God, showing himself to Job, doesn't it? That the Lord said, Job, this is who I am. Your view of me is deficient. God doesn't spend time trying to give Job all the reasons why for why things happen. He says, this is who I am, Job. And David here, he doesn't give us any reasons for why God can be king in the midst of such suffering, does he? He simply states it as fact. Now, we certainly don't have time to do this subject justice, this, this big issue of how could, a God, how could a good and sovereign God exist when there's such evil and suffering in the world. But... I think it is very relevant for us because both in the church and out of the church, this is a question that goes through our minds at times. It's a huge question for our society. I think we can think well about this. I'm absolutely convinced that Christianity is the only faith that you can fully use your brain in. That God doesn't ask you to shut off your brain, doesn't ask you to shut off your intelligence. You never get to the bottom of the Christian faith. It's still consistent. It's still coherent. So even with this issue, I think we can think well about this. I want to spend just a couple moments doing this. Now, um, just a couple minutes, but for sure we're not going to do it complete justice. So these are just a couple of ways forward that I think that we can think and some paths that our hearts can pursue. And number one, I think we've got to remember that evil and suffering and wickedness in this world is the result of a fall and the result of sin, not the result of an action by our God. It's the result of the fall and the result of sin. The sin of our first man, Adam, way back at the very beginning, that sin sent reverberating shockwaves through all of creation, all of history, and we are still feeling those today. Sin broke our previously perfect relationship we had with God, with creation, with each other, and with ourselves. We immediately became in need of a Savior, and we also immediately began trying to save ourselves. We just try a little bit harder. We do that today, don't we? Try a little bit harder. Rather than being destined to life, we became destined for death. Everything became broken. Now the Bible also teaches that it's not always going to stay that way. That eventually, someday, God is going to heal all of creation. That we'll be back in perfect union with the one true God. But today is not that day, is it? We're still in a broken world. We still feel this tension. I think that the Bible does give some clues forward on how to think about this. I want to look at just a couple of those next. It's going to leave us ultimately wanting, but here are at least a couple of ways forward we can be thinking about a good and sovereign God over a world in which they're suffering. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says that God's patience, so this is God's patience with the sin of us, with our sin, with the wickedness of the world, is somehow supposed to lead us to repentance. So the idea is that God does not immediately judge us the first time we sin and wipe us out. God's God's grace in fact, allowing sin to be in the world is supposed to lead us away from that sin and back to the one true God. 
In Romans chapter 9, Paul says that somehow God's patience with this suffering world will ultimately reveal his own glory. I don't completely understand how that's going to work out. But the Bible is true, then this is true. In James, James chapter 1, do you remember our study of this? James says that the, the darkness you go through, the trials you go through, that God will use that in your life to produce maturity. That's actually a grace from God upon us. And in fact, you're supposed to count that as joy, those trials as joy. This is hard for us to understand. This is what the Bible teaches. Second Corinthians, actually before we get to Second Corinthians 1, do you remember the biblical example of Joseph? This is one, one example of the James teaching. Joseph, back in the story of the uh, uh, book of Genesis, Joseph's brothers commit treachery, attempted murder. God uses all of that, and he actually saves Joseph's family through that. His family that later becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. And he uses the darkness to actually bring some good out of it. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says that somehow our suffering is going to prepare for us glory for us beyond all comprehension. I don't know how he's going to do it. It's a good thing he's God and I'm not. But he's going, to, he's going to do that. I think even within creation, we see that this line of reasoning is still consistent. Um, up here is going to be the lodgepole pine tree. The upper left-hand corner is a cone from this tree. We have these trees up here in the mountains in Colorado. So the tree produces the cone within the cone of the seeds. But the cone is completely covered by resin. So the cone falls off the tree, lands on the ground, but the seeds never have contact with the soil, so it just sits there, just lays there. The only way that those cones can be dispersive is if a forest fire ravages through that area. Then that heat of the fire actually melts the resin off of the cone. The cone opens up, which is the bottom left-hand picture, and the seeds are dispersed, which then creates a new lodgepole pine tree forest in the bottom left-hand corner. Then here we see that life is dependent upon a destructive and ravaging fire like a forest fire, a natural disaster. In fact, let's just take one more example, then we'll move on. Take the story of the Bible itself. The story of the Bible. Take a step back. The story of the Bible itself. The most evil act, the most, the biggest unjust action ever committed results in the biggest gift of life we could possibly imagine. That immense evil resulted in the highest definition of the greater good that we could possibly imagine. That due to Adam's sin, due to our sin, we were severed from God. We were in need of a Savior. We could never make our way back on our own. So what does God do? He actually enters our broken world. He enters the pain. He sends his Son, who is fully God, to become fully human, to feel what we feel. He knew what it was like to be scorned, to be rejected, to feel pain, to live in a broken, to live in a messy, messy world. In fact, he took the sin of the world upon himself on the cross. Can you imagine how dark that was? We will never imagine how dark that was. He took that upon himself on the cross. He died so that we could be reconciled with the God of the universe. And then don't forget that three days later, he rose again. And he broke the power of death. God took, world, took evil and he turned it on its head. The Lord is king. Even though we don't always understand, the Lord is still king. And his kingship, his reign, is not dependent upon our understanding. Praise God for that, right? It's not dependent upon our experiences or our perspectives. I think this is part of David's point. Rather than the king conforming to our understandings and perspectives, we are to conform to his. Our hearts are, con are to conform to his reality rather than vice versa. The Lord is king. In the midst of our darkness, our hearts need to hear that. The Lord is still king. 
That's not it. There's much more. Look at verse 4 again, the second half. The Lord sees. The Lord's not only king, but he sees. We do not serve a God who's oblivious. We don't serve a God who's ignorant, that doesn't know what's happening. We don't serve the false God of deism who supposedly created the world, turned his back, and walked away. That's not the one true living God. The one true living God sees. Even when you feel abandoned, even when it feels like God has turned his back, he still sees. In fact, he knows your situation better than you do. He knows your heart better than you do. He has not forgotten you. He hasn't put you out of his mind. Our Lord is king and our Lord sees. Look at verse 5. The Lord is active. This is a little bit mind-boggling for us. We touched on this a bit before. The Lord is able to use your current trial, your current situation, your current darkness you feel. In fact, he may be using it to mature you. David says here, he tests the righteous, examines you. It it shows you where you are, the areas that you still need to grow in in maturity. See, nothing is lost in God's great economy, even pain, even suffering, even our sin. God can use all of this. God remains active and engaged. The presence of darkness does not indicate an absence of God. As we saw in the book of James, God can use these trials to be maturing us. We should see it as joy, something that is almost unimaginable when you are in the middle of the darkness. That our God is active even in the middle, the very middle of the darkness when your hope is gone. This is the sort of God that we serve even if we don't understand it. But there's more. Verses 5 through 6. The Lord is just. Not only is the king who sees, not only is he active, but he can use the darkness, but he does not allow injustice and evil to go unpunished forever. God will be the one who executes justice. He'll vindicate the innocent. He'll right the wrongs. He'll set the balances straight. David uses the imagery of fire and sulfur coming out of heaven. The last time this was used was when God wiped out the wicked city of Sodom back in the book of Genesis. So David feels the injustice of his situation. And his anger starts to boil over and he pleads with God, God, would you just wipe out my enemy? Now, now we know that people are not the true enemy, right? That the Bible teaches that we, our ultimate struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the, the prince of the air, the powers, the principalities of the spiritual realm. That that's where our struggle is. In fact, our greatest enemy, Satan, he is alive and well. That is our greatest enemy. But by the Lord being just, we can be assured that one day he will do away with our enemy. Satan will, will be done with forever. Suffering will be done. Sin will be done with. I think that we have to be careful that we don't lose this aspect of God. That God is completely holy. And he completely detests sin. That this, in fact, that this is fundamental to his nature. I think we have a habit of sanitizing our God, don't we? We rub the rough edges off. We, we try to make it a little more palatable for our modern consciences. But we cannot do that. That's not truly who our God is. Our God is completely holy. In fact, the Bible teaches that those of us who don't know Jesus, who don't trust Jesus as our Savior, who remain in our sin who have never had Jesus' righteousness applied to us, that we can legitimately be called wicked. And that God's wrath one day will be poured out in its full upon wicked people. 
This makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We don't like to talk about this. But God's holiness and wrath towards sin is fundamental to his nature. I think for that for those of us who trust Jesus, this fact of God's holiness should inspire to thankfulness, should also inspire us to more fully trust the Lord when we are experiencing darkness, that he is going to be the one who's going to write it, that he can and that he will do that. And for those of us who don't trust Jesus, who don't know him, I think it should inspire a turning from your sin and turning to the Lord to save. There is no such thing as a good person just based on your merit of being a good person escaping the wrath of God. That does not exist. The only escape, so to speak, from this wrath is by trusting in Jesus as your Savior, to have Jesus' righteousness applied to you, something you can never earn on your own. See, Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath that we poured out on sin so that we don't have to. Here, David pleads that his enemies will drink that cup. And for us who trust Jesus, Jesus drank that cup for us. This is absolutely beautiful. We don't have to drink it. In the midst of our darkness, our Lord is still king. He's intimately aware of your trial. He's active in the middle of it, and he's just. Verse 7, the Lord is good. Isn't this one of the first things that tends to go in our minds when you're experiencing trial and darkness? We start to question, is the Lord really good? I think often we equate the, how we experience the degree of life as good, we equate that to the degree that God himself is good. Here, David assures us that the righteous are on God's side, so to speak. The righteous person here is the same, as the up, is the same person as the upright in heart back in verse 2. That is, it's the person who fears God and turns from sin. We could say it's the person who's in a relationship with God and their life is marked by that relationship. See, in the midst of the darkness, what a wonderful assurance is this. Your God is good. He's not evil and sovereign. Your God is good. The Lord is righteous. The Lord does not act toward us in ways that is inconsistent with his goodness. He does not tempt us. He does not cause us to sin. The Lord is good. And the Lord is our hope. The last line of the psalm. The Lord is our hope. This should boggle our minds. That, that we who know and trust Jesus shall see God's face. It doesn't say that we shall see God as lawgiver, does it? it shall see, we shall see God's face. There's a personal element of that. We shall see his face. This is the ultimate hope for the Christian heart. This is our ultimate joy. It isn't the safety found temporarily in a cave, is it? It's not even the, the ending of your pain. It's not the clearing of the darkness. That's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is not the solution to the pain. Our ultimate hope is seeing the face of God. Back in verse 4, it says that God beholds, that God sees us. We know that we're seen. But the same language is used here, that we will behold, that we will see the very face of God. This is our ultimate, foundational, most primary hope upon which we set our hearts, especially in the midst of darkness. And this is the mark of Christian maturity. When the pressure is on, where does your heart tend to go? Where does your heart tend to go to get out of that pain? What about when the pressure has been on for year after year after year after year after year? Where does your heart go? David's response is to remain steadfast and trust God because he is who he says he is, that he's in control, is intimately aware of our pain, that he's working even in the midst of our pain, that he ultimately will right the wrongs, that he's good, that he is our only hope, our only joy after all. 
I want to make sure, I want to make sure that you catch this part, that it is only out of this steadfast love, it's only on a dependence as God, as our Savior, as our Lord, that we then can consider and pursue other wise courses of action to ease the pain. It is only with our hearts firmly trusting God to save that we can consider concrete steps forward, solutions that God may or may not use to bring us out of the darkness. See, David very well may still have gone to a cave. But here's the difference. It wasn't from a desperate, hopeless heart trusting the cave itself, but it was from a heart trusting that God alone saves, that he may use the cave to that end. This is light years apart. That crucial distinction, does that make sense? That even if God chooses or does not choose to use a book to save your marriage or medication to save your health or an online job site to bring you a job or a friend to save you from loneliness or even good parts about our Fort Collins culture to allow some good heart work to happen in you, whether or not God chooses to use those means, he is still the only one who saves. God is still our only hope. I think the truth of this psalm speaks to our hearts. That spiritual maturity reveals itself in a heart that trusts God in the midst of the unimaginable darkness. Rather than running to a possible solution, instead we run to the Lord. It isn't that we flee. It's to who or to what do we flee. We flee to the Lord because He is great. As you examine your heart, as you try to discern where your heart is, is your view of God deficient? Is your heart settling on idols to save you? Or maybe you have no idea where your heart is going. You don't know who or what you're running to. So here is my only concrete step for us. Like this is like the application point, okay? This is the application point. For the sake of your relationship with Jesus, for the sake of your heart, your heart that God sees as precious, your heart for which God sacrificed himself to be in relationship with, for the sake of that, take time to actually stop from your busyness. Stop from all the distractions. Stop from all this good stuff that you've even got going in your life. Actually stop and ask God to reveal to you the condition of your heart. Devote quiet, unhurried time to regularly examine your, help, your heart with the help of the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is so important that this is my challenge. Would you consider what it looks like to do this in your life, taking the very best parts of your day, those days where you are the most alert, those days where you are the most clear-headed, and devote a portion of that time to prayer? For me, that's not late at night, not early in the morning. I'm falling asleep. That does not work for me. For some of you, that works. It does not work for me. What is that best part of your day? Devote a portion of that to prayer. Would God grant our hearts the grace to passionately and firmly trust God in the midst of darkness because of who he is? Would he grant us the grace to actually believe that our Lord is king, that he sees, that he's active, that he's just, that he's good, and that he's our only hope? Let me pray for us that God would do that in our hearts. Let's pray. God, you know, you know intimately well the darkness that we face, the trials we're experiencing, the pain. You know what we have experienced, what we're currently experiencing, what we will in the future experience. God, I pray that you'd be building in us a steadfastness, 
a steadfastness to firmly believe that you are who you say you are. That you'd be maturing us, that through the darkness you'd be at work deepening our roots in you. Would you give us a greater understanding of who you are? God, we can't do this on our own. We've tried. Our lives show that we've tried, but we fail time and time again. We need your help. We need your grace to do this in our lives. We pray that you would. Pray us all in Jesus' name. Amen.